You're listening to Reach MDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. HIV first presented as a devastating disease with a rapid and fatal outcome. Now, patients are living for many years and being treated and followed by their primary care providers. San Francisco Department of Health AIDS Office has just announced that they're closing their HIV unit. What is the news in treatment as HIV becomes a chronic disease? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Paul Sachs. Dr. Sachs is Clinical Director of the HIV Program and the Division of Infectious Diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He has taught at Harvard Medical School for more than 14 years, and he is currently an Associate Professor of Medicine there. He has been a member of the AIDS Clinical Care Editorial Board since 1996, and he's been Editor-in-Chief since 2003. Today we are discussing the latest challenges in caring for your patients with HIV disease. I'm very glad you could be here today, Dr. Sachs. Thank you for inviting me, Shira. What is the natural history of untreated HIV? Typically, a person who acquires HIV experiences a mononucleosis-like syndrome about 7 to 21 days after they get the virus. This can vary in severity hugely. Some people are quite sick and require hospitalization. Others have minimal illness at all and then spontaneously they recover, then enter a period of clinical latency that typically lasts about 8 to 10 years. And then about towards the end of that period, they start experiencing some of the symptoms that we know of as AIDS, really the specific uh, immunodeficiency-related clinical syndromes that are the advanced stages of the disease. I should say that this is incredibly variable from person to person. There are individuals who acquire HIV and progress rapidly to AIDS within a matter of months, uh, of after getting HIV, that's, that's at one extreme. And there are other people who we know from stored blood samples have been infected with HIV since the 1970s, and they've never experienced any symptoms related to the virus. Obviously, this last group of people represents a unique research opportunity for trying to figure out what it is about the pathogenesis of this disease that allows individuals to control the virus. Right now, our best thinking is that these are people who genetically have immune systems that somehow can manage to control the virus. It's not so much that they've acquired a weakened virus that appears to be much less common. It's that they are able to control it much better than most people. But typically, without treatment, HIV infection leads to symptoms and death within 10 to 12 years, and and it's uh, still, unfortunately, incurable. What symptoms and signs of HIV disease should a primary care doctor be aware of, which would suggest the immunodeficiency and which may not be so obvious? People who specialize in infectious diseases and HIV, like myself, realize that that weight loss is a very important symptom. Because we live in a society where obesity is epidemic, patients sometimes are very pleased that they've lost weight, and, and they should be if they're really trying. However, weight loss is not intentional is usually an indication of a problem. Just like uh, most clinicians would know that that could be a symptom of uh, malignancy, it also can be a symptom of a chronic infection. So a person who's HIV positive who begins to lose weight, and it really could be only as little as 5% of their baseline body weight, that can be a significant predictor that they have underlying immune deficiency. Other symptoms could include such common things as oral candidiasis, One rarely sees that in an otherwise immunocompetent adult without some obvious explanation, such as diabetes or receiving broad-spectrum antibiotics. Um, Herpes zoster, even though herpes zoster is so incredibly common in people without HIV, it occurs in the order of about uh, 
25 to 50 times more commonly among people with HIV than in age-matched controls. And I'll use an example of this recent epidemic of methicillin-resistant staph aureus infection that has occurred around the entire country in all ambulatory populations. But when we see it in our HIV-positive population, it's worse and it's harder to treat. And it's just sort of a sign of a general immune def- uh, deficiency that clinicians should be aware of. All of these things should uh, warrant closer attention to the immune status of the patient. If, if the person has some of these symptoms, should, they should be HIV tested as part of the uh, revised HIV testing guidelines. But if they, if they haven't been, it should certainly trigger an HIV test. So how do you decide who goes on treatment? Well, obviously, uh, people with AIDS need to go on treatment. The average life expectancy of a person with AIDS without effective antiviral therapy is approximately 18 months. Um, That should be contrasted with what we have at least projected for life expectancy today. If someone goes on therapy, we believe that they can live potentially decades uh, or even longer if we identify them before they have severe immune deficiency. So we treat everybody with AIDS. That's that's the first, uh, first step. Anyone with symptoms suggestive of AIDS, anyone who has a CD4 cell count or a T helper count less than 200 definitely goes on therapy. And then there's some debate about the optimal time to start treatment for people who are asymptomatic and have a CD4 cell count between 200 and 350. I generally favor starting treatment at closer to 350, if not a bit above that. Um, there are some clinicians who wish to wait as long as possible till it's closer to 200. It really is a, a sort of nuanced and clinical sort of clinical judgment area, having lived through as a clinician the bad old days of the HIV epidemic, I think it's better to prevent those days from re- returning, if at all possible. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Paul Sachs, director of the HIV program at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and we're discussing changes in HIV treatment as a chronic disease. Dr. Sachs, many drugs are available for HIV. What ones would you recommend, and how do they work? There are about, uh, believe it or not, 20 drugs available for treatment of HIV right now. Remember, the first drug was released in 1987. That was AZT. It's currently known as zidovudine. And uh, since then, there's really been an explosion of drug development with many, many different options. There are four main drug classes for treatment of HIV, the nucleoside-reverse transcriptase inhibitors, of which AZT was the first, the non-nucleoside-reverse transcriptase inhibitors, of which efavirenz uh, or Sestiva is the most commonly used, the protease inhibitors, and there's a wide variety of protease inhibitors available. And then there's this, an injectable medication known as infuvertide or Fusion, and that acts to prevent the entry of the virus into the cell. The way we treat HIV is we use combinations of medications. It was shown in the, in the test tube that two drugs inhibited virus better than one and three better than two and four better than three, but it wasn't until we actually did studies of combination therapy using at least three drugs that were able to reduce the HIV-related morbidity and mortality so significantly. Not only was this a sort of a clinically analogous to a light going on in a dark room, but, but the blood tests that we used to monitor the patients showed that we were actually able to reduce the amount of virus in the blood, the so-called viral load or HIV RNA, to undetectable levels. And the exciting thing about doing that is that when one reduces the viral load to undetectable levels, one reduces the chances of the virus mutating and becoming resistant to available treatments. So as a result, currently, when we put a patient who shows up to our, in our offices today, 
on treatment and they take it faithfully, we can reduce the viral load to undetectable levels and literally prevent the development of resistance. We believe indefinitely. There's no evidence that people who have this kind of suppressed viral load are going to fail their treatment. And it's, it's uh, you know, we can say to people really with a great deal of confidence that they are fortunately unlikely to, uh, to ever have a complication from AIDS. And, and that's a really gratifying thing to be able to do. I, I sort of uh, feel analogous to the way some of my colleagues feel in oncology who are using credible chemo, you know, Clevac for, for leukemia or my rheumatology colleagues who are using TNF blockers because it's so, so transformed the disease. How does the primary care doctor monitor these patients? Is it just by following the viral load? The primary management of the antiretroviral agents is really the domain of the HIV specialist. What has happened, though, is because the patients are doing so well, they often are co-managed with an HIV specialist and a primary care physician. And the primary care physician plays a critical role because with patients living decades, uh, you are actually seeing some of the non-HIV-related complications assume a much greater proportion of the morbidity uh, of, of an aging population. So preventive care that one would do for an HIV-negative person becomes critically important. And one that is of major importance in developed countries, of course, is going to be cardiovascular disease, not only because the population with HIV is aging, but also because some of the medications induce hyperlipidemia and can therefore uh, potentially accelerate cardiovascular disease. So the way we monitor the patients from an HIV standpoint is we monitor their viral load and their CD4 cell count every three to four months. Um, but we also monitor their creatinine, their liver function tests, and also their uh, lipids just to see if there's any toxicity associated with the medications. When should the primary care doctor refer to an HIV or an infectious disease specialist? Unless a primary care doctor has a large panel of HIV patients, him or herself, all patients with HIV should be referred at least once for consideration of treatment. If a person requires treatment, then that should be done under the direction of an HIV specialist, analogous to the way most chemotherapy is administered under the direction of an oncologist or most uh, disease-modifying agents are administered by a rheumatologist. For a patient who has a very high CD4 cell count, say over 500, and has no symptoms related to HIV, um, the, a, a referral for example, annually should be more than sufficient for a patient such as that. What are some of the new drugs in development? What's the bright spots on the horizon? So we already have an incredible number of options for HIV therapy. What's really exciting is that this year, likely, we're to see two new classes be released. The drugs I mentioned before, we haven't seen a new mechanism of action of antiviral agents since the protease inhibitors were released in 1995-96, and that was the same time that the non-nucleosides came out, except for that one injectable drug, the uh, infuvertide. But since that drug is injectable, it's not widely used. However, this year, we are going to see likely two new drugs approved that have different mechanisms of action. One of them is called raltegravir, and it's an integrase inhibitor. It blocks an enzyme that the virus needs to integrate its DNA into the host DNA, the uh, integrase enzyme. And the second is a drug called Maraviroc, which is a uh, blocker of the CCR5 receptor on the surface of the CD4 cell. Viruses that enter the CD4 cell often do so through interaction with a co-receptor called CCR5, and these drugs block that process on the surface of the cell. Both of these drugs were recently shown in fairly large phase three studies 
have impressive activity in some of our most difficult-to-treat patients, and they certainly offer a tremendous amount of hope for uh, people who have drug-resistant virus. Dr. Sachs, where can primary care providers get more information? One of the best Internet sites for HIV treatment information is called uh, AIDSinfo.nih.gov. It is a federally funded repository of all the treatment guidelines for HIV treatment, HIV prevention, HIV opportunistic infection uh, treatment and prevention, uh, et cetera, and I strongly recommend it. One of the great things about uh, this uh, site is that the guidelines are updated regularly and they use all of the best available evidence, so I strongly recommend people make, uh, make that site available to them if they have questions. I want to thank Dr. Paul Sachs, who's been our guest, and we have been discussing changes in HIV treatment as a chronic disease. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. Don't go away. We have more great segments coming up.